0: And I remember Mary Gates, Bill's mom, had this sort of phrase, and it's my recollection of the phrase, which is that if you're fortunate in life, it's your responsibility, not your choice to give back.
1: If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in
0: 1984.
2: After an illustrious career working with Bill Gates at Microsoft, authoring books on fatherhood and work-life balance, and then a PhD in counseling and starting a VC firm, my guest Daniel Petri has become keenly interested in in why many extremely privileged members of society don't readily share their wealth. Why do people have problems with giving? There are lots of reasons, of course. Fear of not having enough for themselves or family, a bit of compassion fatigue, perhaps, possibly a lack of empathy or plain old ignorance about how serious the problems are that others are facing. But which of these is the tipping point in any individual decision to give or not to give? The Petrie Foundation began from an inspiration to see those who had done well also doing good. He now spends his considerable energy and intellect trying to encourage the wealthy in Australia to do more philanthropic work through his Start Giving organization. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Daniel Petrie, one of the most intelligent, engaging, humorous, and compassionate people I have ever been fortunate enough to muse with. Well, welcome, Daniel. I'm very excited to be speaking with you. And I think part of my excitement stems from the fact that I feel like there's a kindred spirit. We have a lot of things in our backgrounds in common, some of them really nice, some of them not so nice, like the, the deaths of our sisters at a, at a very young age and, and some other family things. But I do feel like connected to you, although I feel like you're my much smarter, younger brother, <laughs> but, and also much more clever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll take younger, I'm not sure I'll take some I'm not sure smart as well. Oh, yeah,
2: well, I think you've already proven that
0: it. It, it feels like we're brothers, we're brothers from another mother, kind of thing, yeah, yeah,
2: okay. How about that? Anyway, I do want to talk about the gap between people's moral behavior and their values. I do want to try to talk about some of the psychological factors that both contribute and inhibit philanthropy. I'd like to focus a little bit about marketing and how we can convert some of the people that you call rich old white men. And I assume you're referring to me, although I'm not that rich when you say that. But I do want to talk about their problems with giving. So before we do that, even though I really love the podcast that you did on High Flyers, episode number 113 of December 7th, twenty. 22. And I really like people to listen to that. So I don't need to cover all that ground. If you could tell us a little bit about your story and just take it wherever you want to.
0: Sure. Okay. So I'm a child of uh, World War II immigrants to Australia. My parents were displaced people in Europe and ended up in displacement camps. And then were sent, in those days, you were sent to sort of Canada, Australia, US. They pulled the Australia card. So they came here so anyway, so uh, and we moved to Sydney or they moved to Sydney, I had two children, myself and my sister. We grew up with not much of a diaspora of Romanians in cities, so not like the Italians or the Greeks who came to Australia, um, or later on in the 70s, the Cambodians and the Vietnam, Vietnamese who had these fairly large communities that they could exist in. So we were sort of somewhat alone. I think that played out in the way my my childhood Went went to public high school, went to university, missed out on medicine by a couple of marks, so decided to do computer science, which in 1977 was reasonably a rare thing to do. I did double degree in computer science statistics and then started my career in computing. Worked for a couple of hardware companies and then landed the gig running Microsoft in Australia. And that was sort of the breakthrough for me. I then uh, ran that for three years.
2: Uh, Daniel, can you explain why you moved from hardware to software? I think that's really interesting and really relates to differentiation that we're going to talk about later. Yeah, so
0: so I, I was working for NEC, which was a Japanese computer manufacturer, and it was very clear to me that hardware was highly undifferentiated. There was literally bugger all you could do to differentiate your hardware. It was fundamentally about price, and I just did not want to spend time in an industry where there was no differentiation. So that's where that came from. And I think a number of my colleagues at NEC were thought I was a bit stupid, because I went from sort of, NEC in those days was quite big in Australia to this sort of 21 person company (laughs) of Microsoft in Australia. They thought I was a bit nuts, but I I thought it was made a lot of sense. That was in 1988. And yeah, so then uh, ran Microsoft Australia for a number of years. We grew very, very fast. We were awarded the, Best performing subsidiary in Microsoft in our know, third year. And then Bill asked me to come across to the United States to run a product division. And that was a pretty unique opportunity. I was the only non-American to ever in those days and for many years run a product group at Microsoft. So I did that for a, a few years. I, look, I, I found it hard. I don't think I was a naturally a guy who ran 500 engineers very well. I didn't feel comfortable in the role. I felt I was always hanging on by my fingernails. Well, I was made a vice president of the company, one of 11 vice presidents in the company at that time. And then you referenced it in your introduction, my sister was killed in a car accident in Australia, my only sibling. Her baby was super badly injured, six-month-old baby. husband had injuries. So I just said to Bill, "I've, I've got to go home and help my family. My parents were destroyed, as you could imagine. It was all a shit show. And so I left, came home, Bill kindly moved Asia Pacific headquarters from the US to Australia so get to give me a job. But, you know, I think once you've played in the A-team or the first grade or Premier League, to use the English football analogy, it's hard to then go play in the championship. And so I felt I was going to become this cynical asshole because mm-hmm. I'm now in the suburbs, you know. <laughs> I mean, and many people would have loved that job, right? They would have loved the job I had, but I just felt, Um, once I'd been working at the other level. So then I left. I retired from Microsoft, resigned from Microsoft, and started my venture capital career, wrote a few books in between about fatherhood and work-family balance, started a PhD in between.
2: Was the PhD going to be counseling? I know that you have a degree or some interest in counseling.
0: Yeah. So I did did post studies in counseling and um, psych. No, the the PhD was on – the thesis was that chief executive officers and C-suite executives – have a very different perspective on work-family balance to everybody else in the company. Ah. And the question was, is that nature or nurture, right? Are they born that way or do they or do they turn themselves into these family-hating individuals <laughs> when they become the chief executives, you know? Are they assholes to begin with or do they become assholes? Mm-hmm. So then venture capital, I had two, they call CVCs or corporate venture capital firms, which are basically one LP, which is usually the corporate. Um, and they were very successful. So started Airtree Ventures in 2014, 13, 14, and that has gone on to become very successful. But I decided to leave Airtree about a year and a bit ago, just when they were raising the fourth fund for a few reasons. Fundamentally, two, one, I was having difficulty with some of the behaviours of some of the partners That I'd sort of brought into my firm. People
2: you'd written about in your books. Yeah,
0: it was bizarre. It was a bizarre, it was a very bizarre and a a terrible mental health impact on me. This thing that I'd created had become something that I wasn't able to function in. And also I thought I wanted to return to something else I'd been doing for 30 odd years, which is philanthropy. The, The sort of tangential story was when I got to America and hanging out with Bill and rich people at Microsoft, I, I, re- I got this sort of sense that in America, if you're rich and, and you don't give, you're a social pariah. And I remember Mary Gates, Bill's mum, had this sort of phrase, and it's my recollection of the phrase, which is that if you're fortunate in life, it's your responsibility, not your choice to give back. Both those things made so much sense to me. And so when we came back to Australia, we moved about 35% of our net wealth into our foundation, and we started giving from the Petri Foundation but the most recent career move has been to sort of try and increase philanthropy in Australia, because Australia is not a very philanthropic country by any measure, either at a GDP level or even worse, high net worth. And so that's what I'm doing now with Start Giving.
2: I think back on how did I go from being a, a psychologist to a corporate executive. How did I avoid becoming an asshole or did I become an asshole? And I just wasn't aware of it. But in 2008, I decided I'd had enough, that I wasn't going to be the next CEO. I didn't want to be. I told the board, I told the CEO, I just didn't want to do that and that I wanted to do something of social value. So it's not all that different than when you left Airtree. Do you think your political outlook or that of your parents or other people, if you exclude religious giving... Has any kind of a social, political uh, worldview associated with it, or do you think it's independent of that?
0: No, I think my, my father was a massive lefty. You know, he, he was studying for his PhD in philosophy in Austria just post the war and then couldn't afford to keep it going. His whole thing was to become a political activist and for social change. And he, the, the, the goodness of my father was that, that, that he had this sort of sense of social inequality. He was... Pretty anti-capitalist, which I'm, I'm not, but he, he had this real thing about wealth and power. My mother, not so much. My mother had come from a wealthy family, had lost everything in the war, started with nothing in Australia and built quite a successful fashion design business. And the trappings of success were important to her. And that's not a value judgment at all. That's, that was part of her trauma, I think, of her upbringing and her losing everything in the war. I think some of the, the approaches with regard to social purpose came from him, uh, I guess had a different way of, of uh, expanding it. I think also maybe in your experience too, I, you know, we didn't have anything. We, our family came from nothing. Um, so there was no sort of wealth to hang on to or status to hang on to. It was all about you're going to sort of move up from here or try to move up from here. And so for me, of course, it's nice to live in a comfortable house and drive a decent car, and of course, and have nice holidays. But the idea of wealth for wealth sakes just never made any sense and particularly wealth above any level that you would need to live whatever life you want and that's probably the thing that bugs me most about our most wealthy is whatever lifestyle they want to lead and let's not be judgmental if they want to have 12 cars own half of indonesia whatever it is it's this differential wealth that is not actually funding their lifestyle and literally doing nothing and they choose not to allocate any of that or little of that to alleviating suffering and i i i can't compute that i just i just don't understand how that how you could put your head on your pillow at night with this ex, excess wealth whatever you know whatever you wherever it is and choose not right. to allocate it so yeah long answer short question <laughs>
2: No, it's good. I remember walking with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, when we were in university from uh, her dorm to Harvard Square to get something to eat late at night. And I remember thinking, gosh, we're going to spend whatever it was in those days, $7, $6 to get something to eat. And I felt horribly guilty about it. And I thought, well, we could put this money to better use. However, I ended up not really acting on those values for a good part of my life. And it wasn't until a bunch of things happened, one of which was hearing The Girl in the Pond, Peter Singer's thought experiment. And I'm interested in whether or not you ever heard that and whether that had any influence on the type of philanthropy you wanted to do. Did you ever read the book and get influenced by it, or did you? Were you familiar with the girl in the pond yes. thought experiment?
0: Yeah. So I think I was lucky in that, you know, my breakthrough for Vlante was when I was in my very early 30s working at Microsoft, being confronted, to use the term, by Mary Gates's view of the world, Bill's view of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, you just got to, you've got to give back. There's not, not a choice in this. So that, that was the, that was the driver, which maybe you didn't encounter that until later on in your career. I would had read The Life You Can Save and I, I knew about the, the pond experiment and I loved it. Um, I still do. I talk about it all the time. And it, it is part of that same thing of, you know, how you you may profess to be someone of high moral fibre, but will you really go out of your way to help someone? And, you know, there is a great Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. I've had it literally on my desk uh, for 20-odd years. It's a quote that actually attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson, but apparently his secretary wrote it, but in those days you a woman was going to get credit for it, so I gave it to him. But it's this sort of it it, it delineates these sort of different attributes of successful life, and one of them is that that one life has breathed easier because you have lived is to have been successful. And that to me was sort of a mirror of this whole um, the girl in the pond and this whole the whole sense of just trying to alleviate suffering somewhere, even if a capacity only to do one thing, help one girl in a pond, That's still virtuous and good. And yet we somehow have got a society where the major the significant majority of us choose not to do anything. The other aspect of Peter's work in effective altruism, I'm sort of a massive believer with some caveats. So I think you need to hear
2: about those too. Yes,
0: I think you need you, you 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 absolutely if you choose a cause area, you need to make sure every dollar is spent well. So that's kind of an overall effectiveness thing. And by the way, we are doing a lot of work in relative to our donations each year, work in Africa, where what you can do with $10,000 is mind-blowing. But I also think for a functioning society, you need to accept that philanthropy may have different forms. And so to use an extreme away from, you know, helping people not die of starvation in Africa would be the arts. Now you could say, well, effective altruism would say don't give a dollar to an arts company. And yet we do know that, that arts, uh, the arts is an important part of social fabric, narrative telling, people's feeling of, of a sense of community. So it's, now given that arts companies generally cannot make money, they can't charge ticket prices high enough. And that, of course, excludes the greater population and governments aren't very happy to fund them. You kind of got to accept that. Okay. If someone wants to choose to give their philanthropy to an arts company, which is the extreme end to a kid dying in Africa of poverty, that's probably okay. As long as of a hundred cents in the dollar of philanthropy, 90, 95 cents goes over to, to things that are fundamentally alleviating suffering. So that's how I sort of kind of parse a bit of the effective altruism doctrine.
2: Have you shared the girl in the pond video with anybody just, or at least told the story to anybody that it's not had an impact on, or do you find that it impacts everybody you share it with?
0: My experience is it makes people feel uncomfortable. The first thing that you get is a sense of, of discomfort and often, well, that's not really fair, you know, you can't really use that. And when you go, well, why? <laughs> well, you know, it's the same thing. You know, you, yes, you're not walking past the pond, but you kind of are. You know? It's just the pond is out of sight.
2: Right? right. And there's 5.3 million of these girls dying every year yeah. instead of just one. Yeah. As psychologists, we know that these numbers numb people, that mm. there is this psychic numbing when you tell people 5.3 million we know from research that it doesn't have the same impact as telling people there's one girl dying or one girl or one boy.
0: Yeah. And, and that's the narrative of the individual. Yeah. You know, just on that whole, you know, we have this, one of the projects we do is uh, uh, we put water bores in villages in Africa around epicenters that we, some we funded, some we haven't, which uh, like a village squares included, and they include grain stores and, medical centers and schools, but those things take seven years to build. So we've started a project of putting a boar in each village around it. And, and what the board and there's a point to the story, what the, the boar does is allows the, the, the people in the village not to lose, each family lose six to eight hours a day schlepping to the river to get dirty water. So obviously it's time, but also babies aren't dying of waterborne diseases, women aren't dying of bacterial infections. But the most powerful part of that when I tell this story, I use this example is that rape of young girls is down because it is the young girls going to the riverbank, not the young boys because they're in the fields. Mm-hmm. And you as a father is sending your daughter to the river knowing there's a predator there that's gonna rape her. And it is, you know, so you could talk about the thousands of kids, babies dying of waterborne diseases and they'll go, oh yeah, it's terrible. You tell the story about a 12 year old girl getting raped each day. At the riverbank and it has this visceral impact on people and yet you know it, so it's kind of useful but sad that as individuals we have this psychological numbing when we talk about things in the broad context and I mean it needs to be brought into the individual context like the the girl on the pond
2: we're both interested in psychology do you have any thoughts or have you given a lot of thought to how we can use psychological variables or marketing to impact philanthropy
0: yes sadly most well my experience of what 35 years of hanging around rich people is that most rich people i've met are not very good humans they don't have a very clear moral compass and money and power and the status that money brings them means a lot more than they're prepared to admit that that's that's my experience there are of course, some very, Bill Gates, some very good um, humans who are very wealthy. But sadly, my experience is most of them are not very good humans. And part of the reason they've been successful is this sort of obsessive drive to make money and often flirt with the edges of, of moral and legal constructs. So you're not dealing with a bunch of, Aid workers, right? You know, yeah. So I, the answer to the question is you need two things. You need to try and appeal to the best in humanity. You need to try and appeal to, to the goodness of people and try and help to bring them around. But I think the stick is also you need, as we don't have in Australia, you need inheritance taxes. You do need higher taxes on the wealthy. I, I think there's a whole conversation which is that this, this, Dramatic increase in inequality uh, of wealth in every country around the world now has to be dealt with, not just on the back of, please, can we work out ways to, for you to give more? That would be lovely if you did. And we should do that. But we also go, this is the system's broken. Capital is returning to people who make capital and it spirals away. And that, so it doesn't seem fair that they don't pay a higher proportion of their income than they do today, back to alleviating suffering.
2: So one thing I wanna to say to all the wealthy people that are listening out there, I want you to prove Daniel Petri wrong and tell that to show what an incredibly wonderful and generous person you are. You can go to the lifeyoucansave.org and give lots of money or get in touch with Daniel or me and uh, prove that Daniel doesn't know what he's talking about. But unfortunately, you have described a lot of people and we will get to how you've cleverly gotten around this problem.
0: Hi, I'm Roy Head, the CEO of Development Media International. You're familiar with ads that sell products like shampoo and beer and medications. Well, we make ads too, but our radio and television actually save children's lives. They're scientifically evaluated and they're aired on radio stations in sub-Saharan Africa, encouraging mums to bring their young children and babies suffering from severe diarrhoea or malaria or pneumonia for life-saving treatment in community health centres and hospitals. The Life You Can Save has been instrumental in raising funds to support our work. Please visit thelifeyoucansave.org forward slash musings to find out how to save lives.
2: I want to um, switch gears for a minute. When I first came to The Life You Can Save in 2013, I believed that I could use marketing dollars to spread Peter's message, not just the book, but the idea of high-impact giving the 25 charities that we're supporting and how trustworthy and valuable they are. I thought I could use marketing dollars to do it. and I had been I had a $90 million marketing budget when I was president of this retail company. So I just figured, all right, well, I'll just talk to people about the girl on the pond and about the work that we can do and how far dollars go in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. And I'll get all these really wealthy people to contribute and we'll just market our way into growing Peter's ideas and to get people to give not all of their money, because I agree with you that people will want to differentiate where they give, but a significant chunk of their money where it will do the most good and where it can actually save lives for very little money. So I was an idiot. I thought that it would be relatively easy, probably why I decided to do the job with Peter. And it turned out to be very, very difficult. But my question is, if we're able to raise money, do you think marketing? and advertising, which is a specific type of marketing in general, could be useful in spreading these ideas and increasing the penetration of high-impact charities? Yeah, I do. I think
0: there's been a maturing of approach to how a dollar, a donated dollar is used. You know, the, the, you go back in a while, not that long ago, and it was just like, you know, every charity's got to have their OPEX be sub-10%, you know, so 90 cents every right. dollar went out. And of course, there's been the very very good TED talks and papers written that say well that's just ridiculous there's no business in the world that could run on 10 cents or maybe Google search that's about it but you know there's there's very few businesses that could run on that and you you know if you want to get better reporting better marketing better penetration high growth you need to invest in, in the infrastructure of the business and so I think yes I think well targeted marketing to help grow and, and it's all metric based. It's not just sort of throwing dollars out the window and hoping for the best. It's all, you know, as you would in a sophisticated environment as in your, as in your previous in role. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's other donors attuned to that. I think that is more and more the case. The donors are realizing that as long as they can see that the infrastructure spend of their dollar of giving is being spent wisely. Then they're okay if that's now 20 cents in the dollar or 25 cents in the dollar and in fact many as you would know many of the research now says it should be more like 30 cents in the dollar because if you also want effective reporting back to the donors of what actually happened well you need research well that doesn't come for free either i think the problem is most charities are being forced to show returns on investment far disproportionate to any business on the planet and you go, well, why? You know, that doesn't make sense. Now I'm not saying it should be, they should have low return on investment, but to make them have, oh, you've got to show at least a 15 or 20 times returns. Like, well, there's not, there are very few businesses on the planet that can do that. Why, why, why restrict and an environment where the service delivery is harder, more complex, you know, you know, all the other things that also apply. So yeah, the good news, I think is that. Uh, there are some winds of change in philanthropy coming from the tech sector. There was a good piece in The Economist in the February 17 Economist, a decent article about tech philanthropy, and it kind of maps to what, what I had sort of um, developed a thesis around a couple of years ago. Generally speaking, the tech founders were much more socially progressive than the cohort of Albert white guys on any measure, which I think is a very good thing, by the way. Secondly, I've not yet met in 30 odd years of investing in hundreds of companies. I've not met one tech founder who believes they deserve the money that they've earned. Now, of course they accept it, they take it, some are giving back, but all of them admit luck played a huge role and the returns they've got is disproportionate to any effort or sacrifice they've made. It is very hard to find those, those comments from old rich white guys. Uh, and the ones I find most hilarious, particularly in Australia, are mining billionaires who've all they've done is <laughs> dug shit out of the ground. I mean, literally, that's they've dug it out of the ground, stuck it in a truck, gone to a port, sent it to China, made billions, and they feel they deserve it. But
2: I might say they aren't the ones who've dug it out of the ground.
0: <laughs> yeah, well,
2: yeah. I mean, yes, they had other people dig exactly. it out of the ground.
0: Exactly. So I- even that use case, right? So there's there's the this, this sense of well, you know, I deserve it. The other attribute which I think is different is this, is this discomfort with inequality, which you've touched on. Generally speaking, I found that tech founders are not comfortable with the inequality in society and they want to do something. They're not quite sure what they want to do something, whether it's alleviate suffering, create opportunity. This other crowd, you, and you would have heard it many times as well, it's just sort of, well, you know, everybody has the same opportunities that I had and if everyone just worked a little bit harder, you know, it's complete crap, right? And the final one is they want to do something now. Whereas a lot of people, people, even people who are pledging to give fortunes away are going to, are going to do it on their deathbed, you know? So, so they are comfortable with suffering occurring for the next 30 years and then someone else will alleviate the suffering with their estate. Whereas this crowd are going, no, 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 we want to do something now. And I think the poster child in Australia's case would be the Canva founders, Mel and Cliff. Mel's written this fabulous blog post on the Canva site, which is worth reading, which first he talks about the fact that which I love this at uh, this this turn of phrase, which is they feel they're the custodians of the wealth that they've created or helped helped create in Canva in their shares in Canva, which I think is a it's a, I think it's a beautiful way of thinking about it, that you are custodians of this pile of money. It's not really your okay, it's your money, but it's not really it's money's come from the system and ended up in your backyard. And then they've said they're going to give significant majority slash all of it away. And they are on the path to start to move that into the Canberra Foundation. So they will be substantial global givers in their 30s. Yeah, you know, they're going to take a few years to set up because to do this scale takes time. But uh that's a great example, right, of this sort of, of this tech founders of want to do something quickly, uh, uncomfortable with inequality, want to have an impact, et cetera. So I think it all goes well that this group, this group could become the beginnings of a new culture of philanthropy that then first just grows philanthropy. If you look at the there's an article in Forbes magazine about I think it's sort of the top, I think two-thirds of the top giving in the United States in philanthropy are tech, are currently tech founders. So this idea that tech being philanthropic is, is not a new thing. So I think if you just don't expand that out and not just the billionaire class but the Tens of millionaire class, and you have this sense of in the tech community, founder community, that if I'm wealthy, I will just give. Surely that A brings more money in, but may also contrast and compare with the traditional wealthy and lack of philanthropy.
2: Can you just explain the mechanics or what you're doing at Start Giving so the audience knows that?
0: Start Giving is a not for profit fully funded by me. And what we're doing is going house to house, talking to founders to get them to think about maybe starting the giving journey early. So someone's got 20 million of paper in their in their company. And they are probably paying themselves 150 grand a year, They're probably living in a two bedroom unit, they're not really living in trappings of wealth. And we sort of try and talk to them about, they could move a million dollars across 5% to a, their own foundation. In Australia, they're called PAFs, a private ancillary funds. Still left with 19 and the 19 can become a 38 and 120 or whatever. And the PAFs because it's sitting in chairs can also grow. Because it's shares and each year, um, because you have to in Australia, 5% of the value of that path is sold down and you can give away 50 grand a year to a charity. And so we talk about how it's not much of dilution of wealth because it's held in shares. There's no dilution of future giving because it's growing and you can start your sort of MVP of giving now with 50 grand to use that use case. I have to say that that story or that narrative is resonating incredibly strongly. We've, we've pitched it to. A few dozen people now, and yeah, people gonna take time. But everyone's gone. Yeah, of course I'd do that. It's fantastic, you know. So you know, I'm earning 150 200 grand a year. I can be giving away 50 grand a year. That's like magic maths, right? You know. Yeah. And so we help them with we pay for the cost of setting up the path. We pay half the admin cost the first three years. We um, help them find buyers to sell down a share. So we do. We help with all the workflow, all the mechanics. Also, if they don't know who they want to give to, we help them find someone. So we have all the life you can save charities on our website. So we sort of help them have a good experience. Our belief is that if you start people early in this guilty pleasure of giving, I can say quite honestly, I have I get more joy and fulfillment and sense of being from the work we do with the Petri Foundation than anything I've done before. I've had a pretty good career. But orders of magnitude. Now, I realise I couldn't do this without having done that. You know, I get the maths, you know, but there is something that is, it's a drug. When you you help someone out, the sense of, of goodness and altruism and benefit to society, making yourself feel better about yourself. I mean, so we think if we can start people earlier on that journey, then as they grow their wealth, they'll grow the percentage of wealth that they will allocate. And yeah, so we've got a goal in Australia to get to over the next few years uh, two maybe two hundred new foundations at least. And we're not talking about the billionaire class, because it'll just sort the numbers. I'm talking about the twenty to thirty million dollar class. And maybe have half a billion, a billion, maybe more in philanthropy. New that didn't exist before.
2: It's a very clever idea and I think it's gonna be enormously successful based on your early results. And I think it comes from understanding what the data was showing you. The data was showing you that these people are different, and you could segment people in such a way that you actually could appeal to the people who'd be most likely to give. I don't think of myself as more compassionate than the fellow next door who could give as much, but I feel like I'm not necessarily that more much more compassionate about being able to visualize all the girls in the pond in Africa or South Asia, but I feel like as somebody who's really struggled throughout my life to feel good about myself and to feel like I'm the kind of person that is living my own values, people ask me why Diana and I have done what we've done. And I say, because it allows me to look at my children and feel like they have somebody they can look up to. And it allows me to feel like I'm more the kind of person I want yes. to be.
0: Well, this goes to your point, your, your morals or your stated morals versus your behaviors. I'm someone who judges people on their behaviors, not what they say. Because it's easy to say, I care for people, I do. Th-. It's what did you do? And it's selfish for me to I, I can put my head on my pillow at night and I feel better about myself because of the trying to help people. But the, 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 the counter story is I don't know how you can put your head on your pillow at night having tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and not be giving in any way and yet still talking about, you know, I I I want to do something, I just don't know who I should give it to or if only charities were more more effective. All these sort of trite uh, excuses. Yeah, and and it's like, no, for every day that you decide not to do something with your excess wealth, someone died. This is real. If you don't give a dollar today to a charity that you could, someone died.
2: And this isn't just available to really wealthy people. I mean, if you can give $2, you can buy an insecticide treated bed net. And so if you can give up the latte that you have maybe once a week or twice a week, there's a tremendous amount of good you can do. So I think everyone has this opportunity, I like to say, to save more lives than Superwoman or Batman. Just by sitting in their house and giving up their lattes or maybe their bottled water, it's a pretty amazing opportunity. In spite of everything you've done, Daniel, you struggle also with being, being somebody who looks at himself in a totally positive light yeah. or in a mostly positive light. And when we talked about a year ago, you said you wanted to spend the next six months learning how to like yourself better. Mm. And I wanted to check in with you and see how that project is going.
0: As a eminent psychologist, you would know that unpacking deeply held beliefs is takes a bit not of effort. Easy. So so yeah. I, I have a deeply held belief that I'm not a very good person and I just don't like myself and haven't for decades. So I am it's a work in progress. And I do think that my focus on giving is a bit of that, is a bit of trying to Prove to myself that I'm not as bad a person as I think I am. Uh, and look, you know, I, I, I was saying to my wife the other day, I said, maybe in a weird way, this sort of mental health, um, thing I carry has been useful because it's made me from a fairly early age in my early thirties think a lot about giving and, and not just giving, but giving well and trying to move the dial and try to do things. And maybe, so maybe, cross you bear is well okay you've got this weird self-esteem issue going on but look at the good you've done.
2: As a therapist I used to ask people who would come in with a problem I used to say who would you be if you gave up that belief what would happen because usually I mean and I'm asking you the same question and when I come to uh, visit with you in January of next year I'm hoping that you'll give me an answer but who would Daniel be if you all of a sudden he decided he really liked himself a lot. So I'm going to look for an answer to that question uh, when I come visit you in Sydney. But I wanna ask you a final question I'm asking all the people I speak with is, what do you think it means to live a moral life? A really easy question. Yeah, look, I, I think <laughs> most
0: people, if you force them to really think about what is right, they'll come up with the right answer. So I think living a moral life is stri- stripping back the excuses and rational rationalization you put in place to support your behaviors and really confront what you think is right. It's my sort of head on the pillow at night. It's dark, you're in the bedroom, your partner's asleep, you're with your thoughts. If you strip back all these created beliefs you've put there to support your behaviors, if you pull that away, I think you will know what what is right. And So for me, a moral life is getting back to reattaching yourself and your behaviors to what you, you actually know in your core is the right thing to do. It's pushing out all this other stuff that you've used over the years to justify your behavior so you don't go to bed at night thinking you're a bad person.
2: So we, in order to uh, move the needle on effective giving, we have to help people strip away those things. If you believe what Plato believed, that if you know what's right, you'll do what's right. But maybe people convince themselves through the stories they tell themselves things that really don't get them to know what's right
0: yeah no, and i think it's a, I think on that also it's a challenging thing i think the mistake we make in australia is we do not i must say challenge i don't mean in an assertive aggressive way i mean just in a conversational supportive caring way we don't challenge our wealthy or even generally to give we, we don't have we talk about Australia being an egalitarian country and we all you know for each other well that's occasionally true, but not on mass. You know, a fire people put money into a fund for fire or floods, but on mass we don't. And I think there has to be an open conversation you have with your friends and family about well, why don't you give a little more and, and not be afraid of that conversation. And we are afraid of having that conversation. We run away from it in Australia and I don't think that's right. If someone wants to be a, a wealthy person and not give, then fine, but you've got to own that space. Don't pretend you care about others. Just admit it. I'm a greedy prick. I don't care. Fine. That's an okay thing. But, you know, it's this weird thing where we let people get away with not giving because they talk about how much they care, but they don't do anything. And so I think it's this honest conversation about where one humanity, a chunk of them are living their shit lives because the other chunk, larger chunk won't do anything about it. Seems bizarre.
2: Well, Daniel. I really appreciate your in, indulging me and having an honest conversation. And I look forward to continuing uh, these conversations over hopefully many years. Thank
1: you very much.
0: Thanks, Charlie. It's been a joy. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and to Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about The Life You Can Save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.